Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Cut the Cord podcast, episode 13. I'm Hannah, and I'm joined by some other streaming media nerds, Mal. Hello. And Ryan. Hello. Together, we take on television for those who have cast off the tyranny of their local cable provider. Each week, we gather here to find a great show to watch from the often overwhelming variety of shows to choose from. We review the prior week's selection, then we pick a new show and do it all over again. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. Spoiler alert. The Allies won World War II. This week's show is Netflix's Five Came Back. Our companion song is the opening theme by Thomas Newman. Let's take a listen. That is some stirring patriotic music. Oh, you liked the theme? For once. I thought it was good. I really like it. I think it fit really well. Just a warning to everyone. We're going to be dealing with some intense subject matters, dealing with World War II, with combat, with internment camps, with the Holocaust. There are things we're going to touch on here that can be disturbing to listen to. I think the journey is worth it, but you need to be aware that we will be discussing difficult subjects. So judge for yourself accordingly. Five Came Back is based on Mark Harrison's 2014 book Five Came Back, The Story of Hollywood and the Second World War. It was directed by Laurent Bozaru. Bozaru. Not sure how you pronounce that one. I think Bozaru or Bozaral. It's French. Sorry, guys. It was starring. Each modern director comments on one of the five World War II veteran directors. So Francis Ford Coppola talks about John Huston. Guillermo del Toro talks about Frank Capra. Paul Greengrass talks about John Ford. Lawrence Kasdan talks about George Stevens, and Steven Spielberg talks about William Wyler. And it was all narrated by Meryl Streep. So the summary of the show is it's a series of documentaries about five famous Hollywood directors who stepped up and gave up their Hollywood careers in order to go and use their film skills to shoot and create propaganda for the Second World War. And it follows them throughout the war and records their struggles with making an artistic production under the purview of the U.S. military in wartime, discusses a lot of the racism used in the U.S. propaganda and how that affected our diverse troops back home, specifically Japanese troops for the most part, and then also how racism impacted Black and African American troops during World War II, and the director's struggles with how to portray these different groups. It follows them through their entire war experience and their innovations in how to shoot and cut together films about war and each of their philosophies about that. follows them through the post-war period, the recovery or lack thereof, and how it affected their later work. I want to make sure we're all on the same page about the word propaganda. Something I noticed was how all five of these people, especially Weiler, yes. changed their view of the word propaganda mm-hmm. over the course of this project. Yeah. Is it documentary or newsreel or propaganda? Guillermo del Toro mentions sort of what we're doing. Like, what does that word mean? Mm-hmm. 
propaganda is from propagate to get out to spread the word so i think that they are trying to distinguish between and i don't know if this is a fair distinction or not between the purpose of like nazi propaganda and american propaganda they're both trying to do the same thing one is what i would consider in the service of evil and the other isn't but Mm -hmm. they both are trying to spread a message and change the way people think one thing in the film they talk about Goebbels and triumph of the will that Lenny Reifenstahl yeah bitch anyway so when they saw the powerful way that the Nazi propaganda machine worked and how powerful and effective triumph of the will was they're like this is going to crush our fighting spirit we have to do something about this and that's when they really started taking the war propaganda seriously they needed something to counter this and kind of the way they approach that is very different each director has kind of a different philosophy like you were saying Hannah about how to do that Frank Capra didn't shy away from using the word propaganda to describe what he was doing but he took it upon himself to try to tell it the truth Mm -hmm. to not lie it was very interesting because Capra said that he didn't need to invent anything to do his propaganda he had the biggest stage on the world with the biggest largest characters and the highest drama and stakes possible Mm -hmm. what was very interesting about the way Capra did his stuff is he decided to take all the films that the Japanese and the Nazis were putting out and use their own words against them to show America the horror of what they were doing how evil what they were trying to do was and to show the little guy the American farmer or factory worker standing up against these aristocratic superior Nazis and also kind of like using that to mock them that you laugh Mm -hmm. in the face of evil and that's how you take your enemy down and turn them from the Ubermensch into a man that you can kill. He turns them into buffoons. That also brings up how they eventually became producers as well as directors. As they gained a wider perspective, they had to hire directors to tell all the stories and lost a measure of control. Well, in a way, as they get promoted up the military ranks, just like as officers get promoted, their role changes from being the director who's more like your actual, to use an analogy, like the battlefront person to the producer who's overseeing many directors. Right? Yeah. and many projects that as they become more competent they have these people working underneath them the directors that are beneath them don't always do what they want like there are instances where they end up turning yeah. out films that are so racist and so inflammatory that they have to be re-edited Battle Midway is interesting because that's where you start seeing some of the film techniques getting perfected when the propaganda films first started out they were very like Hollywood produced things where it's like the shining hero and there's no blood the American hero strides to war yeah (laughs) exactly that kind of stuff starts rejecting this they start demanding the truth and then at the battle of midway that's an actual one of the first times you have cameras actually in the battle mm-hmm. they talk about when they're filming they're up on this this tower mm-hmm. basically so they can get the shots of all the planes careening everywhere which is of course they i mean they mentioned the worst place to be in an aerial bombardment is as high up and open as you can be which is what you need for the cameras and yeah that tower gets bombed and he gets injured and his arm gets injured and he'll have that wound for the rest of his life but the people who are 
with him, a lot of his friends died in the Battle of Midway. Yeah. That footage was so raw and real. At first, they were afraid to release it because it showed people dying. It showed bodies on the beaches. It was, I don't want to say a horror film exactly, but compared to the sterile Hollywood production, it was shocking. It became real. And they actually had to fight to release that. And a lot of that shaky cam stuff that we kind of take for granted now that when you want to show battle and how confusing it is, Mm -hmm. Battle of Midway is only the first time they did it. Like Steven Spielberg does it in Saving Private Ryan. I think very famously. And then I think a lot of times they picked it back up a lot since then. It's a cliche now almost. Before, they would have looked at that footage and said, this is a ruined shot. Not framed properly anymore. You can't use that. It's not framed. The crowning achievement of that, in my opinion, is the Battle of San Pietro, where they actually retook an already liberated city in a completely staged invasion. Yeah. And they purposely, all the things they learned from the Battle of Midway about what real battle footage looks like, they recreated that in their shots so that the shots of the Battle of San Pedro, they look real. Like you see people get shot, not perfectly centered in the frame. And you see when they get shelled that the camera shakes and gets, you know, knocked sideways and, you know, things like that, which they're trying to recreate that authentic look that they discovered. So, I mean, that's one filmmaking innovation you get there. Yeah. And then also in the Memphis Bell, those are mm-hmm. actual bombing raids that they're on. Yeah. Which at the time, they weren't even sure if they could release because there's swearing in it, which we would say would consider to be so tame. But in the 1940s was shocking the salty language they were using. It was censorville. I mean, they couldn't certain kisses on the mouth were too sensual. Things like, come on, you Nazi son of a bitch, like things like that. Yeah. Are very real. And in that movie, they show planes getting shot down, soldiers dying on camera. My God, listening to them count the parachutes. As they're bailing out, there's what, might not be 20, but say there's 20 men on the plane, and that bomber starts going down in that slow spiral, and you start seeing people bail out, and they're counting the parachutes, and then nobody else comes out, and they're like, there's still so many men on that plane, and you see it crash into the ground. That's not staged. I'm blown away by how natural the re-recorded Airman's chatter was. The fact that they came back more than a week after and were able to do that. Those planes are so noisy, you can't record sound on Yeah, them. you can't record the sound. William Wyler, he filmed the Memphis Bell and showed that. And actually, during that bombing raid, there are camera crews in each plane, right? And there are camera crews and planes that did not come back in that movie. So when we yeah. say that these five came back, there are friends and co-workers of theirs who most definitely did not, and they watched them literally in lots of cases die in front of them making these films watch them die in front of them and then recovered their footage and then cut that turned down a drink for all those brave men weiler did so well with the memphis bell they wanted him to do another one so there's the b-25 bomber which is much noisier and he went up without ear protection on it Mm -hmm. and in one flight he went permanently deaf yeah she thought would ruin his career but it's kind of interesting that his filmmaking style changes but actually evolves and becomes better as he becomes more kind of observational and painterly in his style yeah this reminds me a bit of the get down in that I'm struck by how timely they both. When I was looking up info for this show, I was struck by how few veterans of World War II are left. Should this have been made maybe 10 or 20 years ago when we would have access to more primary voices? I think they're trying to stick as close to like primary sources as you can. But Mm -hmm. even the interviews they're conducting are from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, they're not still alive. But I mean, in terms of so that the veterans of World War II themselves could have seen this 
project. Thinking about that, my grandfather joined the Navy when he was 17. He had an older brother who served. I'll talk about my Uncle Harold a little later. But my grandfather joined in the Navy and then was training and he was going to be in the invasion force and we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and that was kind of that. And that was his war experience. He ended up getting posted to the desert. (laughs) He joined the Navy to see the world and got posted to the desert on some base out there in the post-war cleanup drawdown. He served with honor and distinction and very proud of my opa. He turned 90 this month. Congratulations. That's just to say he wasn't old enough to make it to the war and he just turned 90 and he's the last person left alive of his graduating class. They're taking our World War II veterans on special trips to see the World War II memorial that's finally been built in Washington, D.C. because they're dying off. So yeah, I think it would have been good to have made this project earlier so that they could have seen it. But I'm really going to enjoy showing this to my opa. Ryan, you had posted something on Facebook recently, some rather insightful thoughts about how the colored film reels that were recently discovered affected you. I mean, I know there's footage of World War II, mostly in black and white, but some in color. But I was re-watching Five Came Back again today to kind of refresh myself for a second time. And I know what's coming in the film, but there's a point, and we'll get to it later because this is a, a major thing I want to talk about in the film. When they go and they show the footage of the liberation of the concentration camps and you see it in color... Yeah, that's brutal. Because in my mind, when I see films that are in black and white, that's more sanitary. It's in the past. It's history that I'm looking at. When I see things in color, it's things within living history in my mind. And it makes it much more real and visceral to me. So I had that caused an emotional reaction to me, even though I knew it was coming, which Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine the people who walked in there not knowing what they were going to see. Just walking through this German village and then all of a sudden there's all this barbed wire and then, oh my God, I can't even imagine. Like I've walked through a village into a concentration camp and it's just... That's one of the costs of war. Like when Stevens went and photographed that stuff, we talked about physical injuries. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that that destroyed a part of his soul doing that, seeing that and dealing with that because he was never the same after that. Mm -hmm. Before the war, he directed kind of like 1930s screwball comedies and Fred Astaire movies and Ginger Rogers dancing and he was known as a comedic director like a light touch in comedy and Mm -hmm. after the war he never made another comedy again but he was not capable of doing that so I think that he did suffer those wounds and we have to remember all of these men they had when I say promising careers I mean these were people at the top of their game working with the top actors of the day winning buckets of Academy Awards when we say they gave up promising careers these were the five most powerful men in Hollywood that did not control bank accounts if you went to Hollywood on business back then you went to see yeah. these five men and they all volunteered to do this they weren't drafted I mean some of them had stuff they were trying to get away from and, and so on but they all chose to do this Frank Capra left everything he had made his name in and fought to get into this program. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget that William Wyler is a Jew. And he knew going into World War II and taking all of these things where he's in planes flying over enemy territory and doing all that, that if he goes down, he's going to die. He's dead. Yeah, he would have had no POW um, protection. 
There's actually a point that makes me love this guy even more, is he's waiting for a cab, and he hears the doorman who's calling a cab. He ends up calling, like, the guy who got in the car, like, a damn Jew. And Weiler gets in a fist fight with him. Yeah. There. And gets ended up getting reprimanded yeah. you know, by the army for that action. Mm-hmm. Conduct unbecoming. Conduct unbecoming an officer. He said, attitudes like that are why I volunteered to fight this war. Yeah. yeah. Like we said, these guys volunteered, but not everyone in Hollywood did. Like, some of the biggest stars of the day, they did. Like, Clark Gable and people like that, they did volunteer. But John fucking Wayne sure as hell didn't, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then there's actually an interesting part where when he starts doing war movies afterwards, that a lot of the directors have a real problem with this. Yeah. As John Ford chews him out a couple times about it while he's directing him. At one point, he even yelled at, can't you even salute like you were in the service? John Wayne also, I think he went to go whip up some of the troops for a USO thing in Vietnam, and that totally tanked. He completely bombed because these young men were not having any of his hoorah crap. They were just like, you never served. One of the reasons he gave was, I'm 40 years old and I'm a father of four. I can't go in as a private. It's beneath me. These guys were not young men either when they Mm -hmm. went to war. And they had families they left behind too. I think this documentary was a little bit too kind to him, to be honest. They were like, oh, and then John Ford hurt his feelings and was like, you know, he was 40. He was fit. He could have served. And I mean, even his point, like he didn't want to carry a rifle around that if he went in, he wanted to do like USO type tours and boost them around, which still would have been service, but he didn't do that either. No, fuck you, John Wayne. Pretty much. You and the horse you rode in on. (laughs) One thing I didn't know was about the contributions, air quotes, of a man by the name of Theodore Geisel. Dr. Seuss. He was one of the creators of Private Snafu. I'd seen the European theater versions before, but not the Pacific. Those works were unapologetically blatantly Mm -hmm. racist. Yeah, it was really terrible. It is. But that brings up something I've been kind of wrestling with this. When it comes to the purpose of propaganda, what role does racism and hatred play into that? Because you have to take men who you could say it's either natural or the way our society works that you don't kill people. It's a general rule that we have. And you have to turn them into killers. The way you do that is you have to dehumanize the enemy. Dehumanize them, yeah. But then as you enter towards the later stages of the war, they talk about how we're going to have to live with these people. We're going to have to have peace. Mm-hmm. How do we not dehumanize them? Like we had to do it in the beginning to start the war. And now how do we roll that back? How do you turn people into killing yeah. machines full of hate? And then how do you turn that switch off? And then in particular, the impact of the dehumanization on Japanese Americans, they were put into concentration camps. Like literally the definition of concentration camp is to concentrate a population of people into an area. They were not death camps, but they were concentration camps. Yes. The creators of these films had to look that in the face and try and justify that to themselves. And I think some of them definitely started reeling it back because they knew that they were hurting people. This is one of the reasons why I have so much respect for General MacArthur, because he refused to let these brutally dehumanizing images be shown to the troops. He knew the war was coming to an end, and he couldn't trust that the people depicted in these would be treated civilly or humanely. 
Yeah. That they were dehumanized to the point where you could not live with. Mm -hmm. I feel that he felt that we were in danger of becoming the very thing that we were fighting. Yeah. We would conquer these people and then consider them to be subhuman and then essentially enslave them. Start committing genocide. I have a ton of respect for him because because of this. Yeah, MacArthur and Marshall, they Mm -hmm. both refused to allow that to go. It's interesting that the way that we treated the two different enemies with Germany and the Nazis, the Nazis were the enemy. The German people were not. We viewed essentially the German people as being the first victims of the Nazi regime, that we were there to liberate them and free them. But the Japanese, as a race, were collectively our enemy. That Mm -hmm. was two different perspectives to it. When I was in high school, I heard a theory that we didn't have as many allies near Japan as we did near Germany, and the allies we had in Europe would not let us behave towards Germany the way we Mm -hmm. ended up behaving towards Japan. Yeah, Germans are one of the largest ethnic groups in the country. Yeah. Well, I mean, it ties into very much into the idea of the other, and that the other you can do anything to, because they're not you. And like you're saying, I mean, culturally, there are very few Japanese Americans in the U.S., and they're pretty much concentrated on the West Coast at this time. Whereas Germans are, besides the Irish, pretty much the largest ethnic group of white people, you know, quote-unquote, in the United States. They're deep cultural ties. In 1900, there were more German speakers in the state of Texas than there were Spanish speakers. We have places called Germantown. New Berlin. We have the Pennsylvania Dutch, who are not Dutch, they're German. So the Japanese already are on the edges of being the other. And then those films so dehumanized them that I think, like I said, you know, MacArthur and Marshall were very wise to recognize there's a great danger in that and to pull that back, which is interesting to me that those who wage war also have to prepare for the peace and that they've seen the terrible cost that comes from war. I mean, some people like Patton, you know, maybe don't get that message, but (laughs) others do. So it's interesting how people react to Mm -hmm. that. What we did with German American soldiers versus Japanese American soldiers German Americans had been so integrated into American society that were just white people. And the kids who grew up, in my case, I know this because this is part of my family history, people grew up speaking German in the home and they would join up the service and the service would be like, oh, you're going to be a great asset. We're going to send you to Germany. It's interesting that these films are so patriotic. You can view that as either a tool you want or trying to highlight the best of America. But a lot of these filmmakers are immigrants. Frank mm-hmm. Capra is Italian. And there are front page article stories from publications that are still around today that use really hurtful racial slurs against him. So he mm-hmm. definitely was not part of mainstream American culture. And like we already said, Weiler is a French Jew who immigrated to the U.S. when he saw sort of the rise of what was coming because he was right on the French-German border and he was lucky enough to get out of there. I think we're seeing a lot of that today. The pernicious power of races can't take back what's been said and you can't always control what you have called up agreed i think that is probably is a reason why they wanted to make this film is they probably felt that understanding propaganda and the role that it has and what hate happens when you unleash it it can have powerful consequences mm-hmm. i mean we talked about sort of the anti-timeliness with a lot of the people that's films about being gone but history is a circle man like stuff repeats and there are plenty of people in the world today left or right whatever side you want to take that would say that propaganda is a powerful tool active in the world today so i think that there is timeliness 
to it. Yeah. This film is as much about war as it is about filmmaking and the power that that has. I think Frank Capra said, no saint, no pope, no general, no sultan has ever had the power that a filmmaker has. The power to talk to hundreds of millions of people for two hours in the dark. A lot of these filmmakers having seen war, when they're accused of their films showing like the too much of the horror of war and that they're anti-war films, they say, if I ever make a film that's not an anti-war film, you need to shoot me. Yeah. War is a terrible thing to unleash. And there's a danger that war is inherently exciting when you film it. It's an adventure. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. And if you don't counterbalance that excitement with the horrors that it shows, you're doing something dangerous. Francis Ford Coppola says every war film is an anti-war film. Talked about when he made Apocalypse Now that he had to balance those two things. That what he was filming was exciting, but he needed to show the horrific consequences of it too. I really want to see what Coppola does next after being a part of this project. Hmm, let's see what he's got in the tank. I personally was really struck by Stevens and Weiler, I thought were the two most fascinating stories here. Yeah. I think this is probably a good time to start getting into Stevens' story about the liberation in Dachau. I think that that is a central point of this film and probably, to me, the most emotionally impactful part of the film. I can't imagine the horror that they experienced doing that because even now we look with revulsion and deep personal horror when we see these things they had no idea what they were walking into when they took their film crews there there are men there with the film crew that could not continue with what they were doing and steven said that he realized he had went from making sorry getting a little choked up went from making a documentary to gathering i can't do it he went from making a documentary to gathering evidence his footage was actually shown at the Nuremberg Tribunal. Yes, he made two films. He made The Nazi Plan, which is kind of like the overarching, that this wasn't just an accident, outlining the final solution and the almost mechanical industrial efficiency of it. And then he made one about the concentration camps. There's actually an image in there where it shows, these are the concentration camps. And you start seeing all the names you recognize. Dachau, Auschwitz, you know, those are popping up on the map showing where they are. And then they're just, I mean, I didn't count them, but there's probably a hundred that pop up everywhere from France to Norway to all over. I was stunned at the scope that they showed. I don't know why in my mind, but I always used to think of it as just several large camps, but that is not the case at all. There are so many concentration camps and extermination centers. I mean, you got to gather up everyone in Europe, right? I mean, wherever you can reach, you need process centers, you need railroads, you need the might of an empire to do that. As sickening as that is, to do something on that scale requires that. This entire series has really just hit me like a freight train straight to my soul. It's graphic, yeah. It's unflinching in its honesty about some of the worst brutality in our modern history. Yeah. I agree with you. The film that I can think of that had that impact on me when I was in high school seeing it was Schindler's List. Yeah. Which is a recreation of it. There are shots that they show from Steven's film that I recognized from that. There's a scene where they show the balcony overlooking it and there's a machine gun pointing down at the compound. That's the rifle scene Mm -hmm. where the officer is taking shots at people in the courtyard. They show the gate, you know, with work will set you free on it. Yeah. These images that they're using are powerful images. And to me, I mean, Stephen's courage and knowledge of what he was seeing that he had to continue. The fact that most of his crew essentially abandoned their job because they could not continue doing it. The fact that he took that unblinking eye of the camera and focused it on what was happening because he knew. I'm going to push back on that. These people didn't abandon anything. What they did, they did to save themselves. I guess when I say abandon, that's not really fair because what they did for the most case is they started acting as medics and essentially priests administering last rites and people 
people taking in letters of the dying to both yeah. document what they had gone through and to also send those letters to people that were still alive. So when I say abandoned, they could not continue to document it without yeah. taking action. Okay, thank you. They transitioned away from filmmaking and documenting and into the more human service kind of role. Yeah. I think that's an important distinction. You do what you can, and I think that's a really good example of self-care and leaders being understanding of what the people that they're caring for and are in charge of need in that moment because a lesser person would have demeaned them or pushed them or guilted them into to that evidence gathering mode. The one detail, and it's such a small detail, but it sticks to me when Stevens is talking about if there were men there who were, they're being starved to death. When you're starving, your senses start failing. And there mm -hmm. are people there who had lost their vision and he would pass by and they would reach out and grab him. And they couldn't tell that he wasn't, you know, a Nazi officer. They couldn't tell the distinction and they would beg for their lives from it. That's, that's rough. Yeah, I'd never heard that before. And he said that at that moment, he could feel, he called it the, the inner Nazi within him, the power that that has and the mm -hmm. revulsion that he felt at seeing these people in such deplorable states, that that realization that that's in mankind, that this isn't some monstrous other that did this, that that capability mm -hmm. lies within every person. Who were humans. Yeah. When I was watching this, I was thinking hell vomited up its devils. And I was thinking about that and I thought that's not a fair thing to say because that places the blame not on man mm -hmm. and this is man and man needs to know that this comes from man the responsibility we like to pretend nazis are evil and crazy and that could never happen again it happens again all the time it's going on right now <laughs> as we speak you could point to multiple locations on the globe that's yeah. happening right now there are multiple points in our own politics and in that of europe where a similar ramping up is beginning i challenge anyone to watch this and not feel uncomfortable at what they see going on today. That's sort of the danger of when we talked about the other, right? What happened with Japanese Americans. When we start to see those trends and human desires to isolate people and blame them, when we see those reactions, there are reasons why people react so strongly to those things that we mm -hmm. did it once as a country and we're not going to go there again. So there's reactions that have a lot of history behind them and the forcefulness that people react to the early stages of things happening, that they won't let it go further than that. We've seen what that does. I think this film is more timely than just being mm -hmm. a documentary about a war that happened. 70 years ago. Um, I wanted to make a note about Stevens switching from making a documentary into gathering evidence and how that probably heightened the PTSD that he experienced after the war because the act of pushing down your own horror and revulsion and just focusing on I need to take down all of these facts I need to document this I need to see and hear all of the details of what's going on in order to share this with somebody for the purposes of justice there's a huge rebound effect from having to to dissociate yourself from your emotional horror and just take it in and I think film it's a visual medium and so he had to take on that responsibility of shooting that footage editing it and cutting it and looking at it over and over and experiencing it it, it, it just must have been flashback upon flashback I've experienced pieces of it and it blows back on you like a couple days later it just feels like somebody kicked you in the stomach and I can't even imagine how being a witness to genocide and documentarian of genocide would be in Judaism, there's a sacred role for the witness. 
Most of our prophets were witnesses to hideous crimes and moral failings. In order to be a witness to this kind of brutality against your fellow man must have struck a chord deep within him. I don't see how anybody with that kind of personal connection could have recovered from that. Weiler, who's also a Jew, like I said, he's from like the border region of France and Germany. And when he got to Europe, he took off with actually Hemingway's brother on this road trip to go visit his hometown, kind of off the books. He went right? AWOL. <laughs> right. But when he got there, the town was empty. They were all dead. They were all dead because they're Jews. They had went through their Shoah. And I think when he saw that, that the buildings were still standing, like his father's shop was still there, but his father wasn't. His neighbors were not. And that that drove that home for him as well. To see these things firsthand, and especially that kind of personal connection. When Stevens is looking at them, these are people, but they're not people he personally knows. When Weiler goes yeah. home, those are people he knows that are never coming back. You know, And that whole idea of PTSD, I find really interesting that the army was so against acknowledging that that even existed there's a film that they made which is actually if you get a chance to watch it all these documentaries we're talking about that they made they're all available on netflix you can go watch them all there's one called let there be light which is a really difficult film to watch because it's showing an army hospital treating all of these people with ptsd which i don't know if you've ever actually seen someone with this the term thousand yard stare you will see where that comes from you'll it's see real. people yeah. shaking uncontrollably and you'll see i guess it it's a more realistic flashback that when the person starts talking, they kind of like look away when they're talking about planes or being shelled or whatever. Mm. Then you can see they're back in that moment. It takes them a little bit to come back to it. It's re-experiencing. Yeah. And they were talking about that. They, at first they were worried that the cameras were going to distract them and kind of interfere with the process. But they said these people were so numb to what was going on that having a camera there made no difference to them whatsoever. Yeah. There's a loss of boundaries. And I don't mean that in bad sense of like, oh, they had poor boundaries, but there is a loss of boundaries that occurs with PTSD and so normally these men wouldn't have wanted to even be on a camera <laughs> being any kind of emotional but they were just so broken down. I think that at one point a man is crying and he's like I'm crying this is just what I do now and he apologizes over and over for it. The idea of the masculinity there that yeah. men shouldn't be wounded in that way. There are parts in some of those war films where they show people taking evasive action and they didn't want to show that because they considered that to be like cowardly. Like you're supposed to be the brave warrior mm -hmm. you're supposed to have this like charge of light brigade you're supposed to go you know do or die and not question what's going on and go bravely to your death that documentary it's very difficult to watch but it's presented in a very for the time with like, like a healer's heart the way he's showing it because he's seen this he's personally yeah. experienced these things and the army didn't allow that to be released for decades until the 80s Hannah, you'd know a lot more about this than me. Would you consider making Let There Be Light to be a form of radical self-care? Yes, I definitely I definitely saw making a Let There Be Light as his way of trying to advocate for himself and for his compatriots, as well as trying and explain why this was happening and humanize it and break down some of those barriers between society and these men returning who were horribly hurt in the way that he was. It's very gentle. It's very loving and compassionate. I think he was treating them the way that he wanted himself to be treated. There's another film that I think also kind of deals with this, and this is William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Life, which, if you've never seen it, is, in my opinion, one of the best movies ever made. When it came out, it won pretty much every Academy Award you can win. And if you look at it now, you know, it's going to be a black and white movie, but it's not going to seem dated. 
stilted. It's not going to seem with that kind of stilted, non-realistic acting. Weiler is showing the struggle of people coming back and trying to reintegrate. And there's all these scenes where difficulty they have when they come back. One of the people comes back and his wife, she's like, oh, look at all these medals you won. You're going to have to tell me what you did. Yeah. The stories. Like, she thinks it's exciting. He is having none of it. He doesn't want to talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. And then he's having trouble getting a job. He can't quite get used to anything else seeming important. He's like, what I did before doesn't seem to hold any interest to me anymore. Yeah. She has this line where she says to him, the war is over. Why don't you just get over it? And he's <laughs> like, oh, why didn't you just say that? You know, and then he like walks out of the room like, yeah. you don't get it. And for the time, I think there were a lot of people who did think that way. And who said those things. You know, I mentioned before that my grandfather's older brother, Harold, came back and he, he spoke German. He was sent to Germany. He got up close and personal with the dead and dying. If somebody is crying for their mother in your milk tongue, the language that your mother spoke with you, it's devastating. So he bore those wounds and he came back. He was highly decorated. And my grandfather never found out about it until he was hanging out with some of my Uncle Harold's army buddies. And they were like, you know, your brother's a hero, right? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, he's a hero. And they were like, no, he's a hero. This is what he did. He refused to talk about it. And he came back into a mental health system, which was completely unprepared to deal with it. Yeah. Just thinking about the evolution of medications, he didn't take any pills that worked until the early 80s. He had electroshock therapy, hydrotherapy, you name it, they did it to him to try and save his life. And he survived to be an old man, but they came back into one flew over the cuckoo's nest standard of care. So keep that in mind. Something that I, as a sufferer of PTSD, really, really resonated. And yeah, this is me picking out weird details again. Weiler didn't use costume design. He wanted the characters to help the story. And so he handed his actors money to go buy off-the-rack clothes. Yeah. Because that's what the characters would wear. And he wanted to remove everything that would take you away from yeah. their story. And he wanted the actors to be in that yeah. truth as well. He says, he's talking about it, that he didn't yeah. have to write or direct anything for this, that he had lived this story, most of his actors had lived this story, and they were just basically recording the truth of the moment, and that's what makes powerful cinema. When we talk about how these directors are affected by it, and how their work changes, Weiler and Stevens, they're powerfully affected by what they saw. They essentially witnessed the Holocaust, not firsthand, but they were among the first American soldiers to go there and see these things. So their lives were changed after that. It's interesting to me that Frank Capra, when he came back, the film that he made was It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. How could someone go through all that and then come back and make a movie that is very sappy and optimistic and all of that? The sappiest movie ever. And he says, I'm alive. Every day that I'm alive is a good day. It's very interesting to me how people can react to trauma, at least in my mind, trauma in two completely separate ways. Mm -hmm. And I think Guillermo del Toro has one of the most insightful lines in the entire he says it's a wonderful life rephrase it capra because when you look at it it is a different language he's used think about it as being very sappy right but in a lot of ways like george bailey is very similar to the soldier who's gone through the horror mm -hmm. he's depressed he doesn't know what to do he wants to kill himself and he's at a crossroads he wishes he never was so when i look at the film in the lights of that it makes it a much more interesting film to me you know my parents watch it every christmas 
and I had, I guess, a, a grudge against It's a Wonderful Life. I was like, ah, that movie is too depressing <laughs> and then it's too saccharine. But now I understand the context of it. It's also a very dark movie and it's a, really about overcoming it. And the set dressing on that movie is really interesting. Give it another watch. I would highly recommend it because the tchotchkes in the, in the background, there's like a shrunken head at one point. You know, it's just really bizarre. Just lots of skulls and mm-hmm. death is hanging around the corners of almost every shot and every scene. Exactly. One thing I do want to point out too is if you do decide to watch this, and I think you should watch it at least once, all the films they mention are on Netflix. And keep in mind, these films are actually very short because a lot of them are designed to be played at the beginning of movies. So most of them are somewhere between 15 minutes and half an hour. If you see something in the film that looks interesting to you, it's not actually going to take that long to go watch Let There Be Light or The Negro Soldier, which was also a film that was not released for a long time for other interesting reasons to it. And I'd like to give a shout out to Netflix because I've read about this variety. They waited until they could make absolutely certain that all of the films were indexed and searchable. All, everything mentioned in, in the documentary. They waited on releasing it until they could make sure of that. Give this movie a watch and you know how Netflix creates categories. It will create a category for you with all of these documentaries in it. It's pretty fantastic. So oh, yeah. you can just finish this and then just keep going and watching the documentaries. I do want to say that the numbing to danger that occurs after a trauma, it completely makes sense why Weiler got on that bomber without his oh, yeah. hearing protection. My therapist calls that extreme behaviors and I think you see a lot in of all that. of them another factor that kind of plays into that incident too is when he made the memphis bell it was a different b bomber that he was on that was actually much quieter mm-hmm. that you didn't have mm-hmm. to wear the ear protection on so he had an experience where he went up in a bomber didn't wear the ear protection and, and it was, was fine. fine but yeah. that plane that he went up on is notoriously noisy so i think he maybe heard the warning he's like oh it was fine yeah whatever you know i've <laughs> yeah. been through a lot worse than that in the last two years i'll be fine yeah Exactly. I've been through worse. Let's do this. I'm going to give this five Aaron Sorkin witches. He was as awesome as Frank Capra's out of five. I'm going to give this five. I will also give it five. How far has man gone mad? Man, this this is going to be weirdly chipper after all that. Palette cleanser. This is like a lemon sorbet. Palette cleanser. Mm. (sighs) Making your way in the world today. Takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? <laughs> Where everybody knows your name. Dum, da, 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 dum. <laughs> I think it's impossible to read that without singing it. I think it's yeah. one, of those, one of those things. But we are glad you came. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Every week, we each bring a show to consider watching. We each vote for a show, and we cannot vote for our own show. The show with the most votes is our next show to watch and review. I actually have one with cross-podcast appeal. It's called Panic on the Bridge. It's on Netflix, and it is everything that went on behind the scenes of the first three seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation. Hmm. Interesting. So I want to nominate Girl Boss, which is on Netflix, and it follows the story of a young woman who finds herself down on her luck 
and harnesses the power of the internet to create a business and create a business empire and it shows her growth or lack thereof throughout this process and it looks really funny and funky and cute and would be a very nice sorbet for us (laughs) so we've kind of dealt with some darker subject matter lately i really need something that is going to make me laugh so hard i choke and make strange noises which happened when i watched silicon valley on hbo okay it is one of the funniest shows i've ever seen in my life it's one of my favorite comedies ever it is a mike judge production Oh, okay. So if you have seen Idiocracy or, well, Beavis and Butthead 2 is kind of in the same thing. King of the Hill. Office Space. This is dealing with kind of the Silicon Valley computer nerds and their startup companies and the struggles therein. But also has TJ Miller, which if you like his sort of laid back, sarcastic comedy style. Dry. Very dry. You're going to see him playing one of the biggest douchebags in TV that I've seen who you just go from hating to loving, depending on how the series vacillates between the two. I want to laugh my ass off. Let's watch Silicon Valley. Season one. Ryan, that's a really good pitch, but I after so much testosterone recently, I'm going to go with Girl Hmm. I'm going to go with Silicon Valley. I guess we're watching Girl Boss because that's my vote. Woo! <laughs> all right. I cannot do another documentary. I'm sorry. I'm all documentaried out. I need a break. So that was Five Came Back. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcasts, Four Color Nerds comic book reviews, and Broke Gaming at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep streaming, nerds!